You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Howard Marks about the future of financing small businesses through the lens of his company, StartEngine. StartEngine is a leading equity crowdfunding platform that allows people to invest in startups and raise capital. During this interview, it was interesting to find out why it's so hard to raise capital, what are the biases and challenges in venture capitalism, and how Howard was able to overcome them and turn one of his businesses into a billion-dollar company. We also discuss what crowdfunding is, how it came about, different types of investing strategies, and what investors should do before diving into equity crowdfunding. Howard also shared insights he gained from Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank, who we had here on the Millennial Investing Podcast, and why equity crowdfunding might be a better option for entrepreneurs when it comes to raising capital. Now, without further delay, let's get into one of my personal favorite episodes with Howard Marks. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I am super excited to have Mr. Howard Marks with me today. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. I was born in Los Angeles, but grew up in France. My parents moved there when I was four. So I have a an education between European education and American education. I went to University of Michigan after my high school in France. And that's when I started my first business while I was in college. I had no idea I was an entrepreneur. I, that was not something I, I even thought about. And met my business partner. We became roommates and started our first business for the Apple II software. Back in the day, Apple had this little machine called Apple II, which was a personal computer. It's completely different than what we have today, but the same idea, which uh, you know, computing for everybody, right? And we started our first software company right in college. And that was a journey that began for me, my career up to today, you know, 30 plus years of business experience, not necessarily charted that way when I started. I'm an engineer computer software engineer, and I designed and built software systems for myself. And then when my first company started, I designed it and built it as well. But right away, I realized that my forte was not necessarily as a programmer. It was also as a business person, imagining, visioning, seeing the future a little bit further than what people were willing to do. And that's how my first software product was basically reinventing the Mac before the Mac, we were able to build a software program that gave you a Windows and mouse movement and graphics on the Apple II before the Mac. And then later, when I got involved with games, with Activision, we decided also to change the future for games because everybody told us, no, the game industry is dead. It's over. You know, Atari crashed and no one is interested in these little things anymore. It's a toy. We didn't believe that. We believed differently. We thought that as technology evolved and the CD-ROM came out, the DVDs, things will be different. And so we focused on it. And so my entire career has been about disrupting an existing status quo. Whatever people believe, I always had a different opinion. 
There are a lot of different things that I want to talk with you about today. The majority of the conversation will be surrounding crowdfunding and Start Engine. But before we get to those topics, I want to talk a bit more about your experience that you just mentioned with Activision and Acclaim Games. Activision is today Activision Blizzard, the video game maker that a lot of people listening to the show are probably familiar with. It's worth about $80 billion as of this recording. As I was preparing for our call today, I noticed you got involved with Activision just about four years or so after graduating college. Tell us a bit about your experience with Activision, how you got involved, and how it all kind of transpired. So here's how it happened. It was a little later than four years after college. It was in 1990. We were building software for other systems, like I mentioned, Apple, Commodore, all these personal computers, and felt the market's going to change again, and computers are going to come in and standardize themselves, and we're not going to be a player anymore. And we didn't feel that we were at the place where we could make a big difference. So the money we made, and we made some a few million dollars you know, in the company and was profitable. We found Activision, which was a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ that was failing, about to declare bankruptcy, tons of debt. They're one of the few companies that had negative sales. So negative sales is when you buy a cartridge for $20 and you sell it for 12 Or right away, your gross margins are negative. So that's weird. I mean, why would the company want to do that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And it was because of the way the cartridge market worked. You know, you have to go pay Nintendo and Sega for the cartridges to be made. And by the time they're delivered, you can't sell your games anymore because no one likes it or it was a dud or the market changed. And now you have to sell it for less than you paid for. And that's what was going on with Activision. And so we found the largest investor in the company who was a a VC firm out of Canada and went in and paid, I think we offered them 400,000 or 300,000, I forget exactly how much, and they took it. So we instantly had 30% of the company. And then we went to the banks who wanted out as badly as you could imagine. They knew this was a train wreck. So we bought the banks for roughly $2 million, whatever they were owed, because they owned everything. They're secure. They had inventory security. They had everything. So we became the bank. And by owning a big piece of the equity and all of the secured debt, we took the company bankrupt. We bankrupted it in November 1991 and started all over. That to lay off 200 people. We were down to 10, moved the company down to L.A., from Mountain View, Northern California, and started from scratch, basically, and raised some money, relisted the company on the NASDAQ. I think at the time we did the bankruptcy, the company's valuation was under $5 million, for sure. It was very small. And we had too many shares. The shares were down to maybe under a dollar. So we had to do a 10 to 1 reverse split, which is very, very dangerous to do, but the right thing to do. And got the stock back to, uh, I think the minimum was $5, and rebuilt from there. Tell us a bit about why you needed to do that reverse split. Well, the NASDAQ has these requirements of minimum price per share. And if you don't meet the minimum price by a certain amount of time, you get delisted, which means your shares are no longer on the market and they can't trade. And the reason I asked about that is because people listening to the show, you might have seen news headlines that say, you know, XYZ company is potentially going to get delisted from the NASDAQ or other exchanges. And this is one of the things that you need to consider is 
the price of the stock. There's a bunch of other things that go into consideration for this, but that's one of them. So it's really interesting to hear that Howard had to deal with that. Well, if you get delisted, you end up in the over-the-counter market or in the pink sheets. And that's very hard to recover, frankly, because at this point, you're like a penny stock. And we thought that we could rebuild the company into a success because we wanted to go against the norm. The norm was cartridges are it. You have to put up a huge amount of capital, usually upfront, to buy them. And then you go to the retailers and sell them, like Walmart. And if they don't sell all of it, they give them back to you. So you imagine, even though it's a sale, they gave it back to you because they won't buy your next game. And it, it just was a bizarre market. And so we thought by going into the CD-ROM, which is DVDs, the CD markets, CD-ROM, the cost to make it is only a few bucks. So you take away that whole risk is gone. The whole inventory, cost of inventory and risk of losing your shirt on a bad game because you have to pre-order a huge quantity for Christmas and it takes two months to deliver where a CD-ROM, you can build over a weekend, you can make another 100,000 or a million copies. So we saw this as the future, except that Nintendo said they are not going to do it. And there were no other people who were offering it. And the only place you could do CD-ROM was the computer, the PC. So we made games for the PCs. And those games did very well, Warrior and Zork. And all these games were phenomenal. When we launched them, we started growing. And just then, as we thought, hey, where's our next big move? Sony announced the PlayStation. And the PlayStation, guess what? Had no cartridge on it. It was only a CD-ROM. And then Microsoft came in and announced the Xbox. And guess what? There was no cartridge there too. So we knew we were right. And we had the experience of building for that medium. And we thought we knew how to do it. And so that gave us a huge advantage over the other players who may have not saw the same thing as we did. Yeah, that's super fascinating because you guys, it sounds like you were positioned perfectly for that transition from Sony and Microsoft to the discs where Nintendo was, I remember blowing on the cartridges as a kid to play the games. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show remember that. So to transition and you guys being positioned perfectly, sounds like it was a, a great timing. Well, it took a little bit of foresight because frankly, again, my theory is most people don't want to see the future even though it does show up, we know that the future happens. We, we know that, right? But there's a, a sense of refusing to accept it. The market saw the video game industry as a toy and did not agree that it was a real big business and could not see further. We could. Where did Activision go from there and how did you end up exiting the company? So it kept growing. We started releasing new games every year, multiple games, and we had now operations in Europe, operations all over the place. And I left about 10 years later, just under 10 years I left to start a distance learning company in the internet. That's when the internet started really booming. That was in the late 90s. And I didn't exit. I just left. I had shares in the company, it was publicly traded. So I just said, you know what? I'm happy with my shares. I want to do something different and left, started an, an online learning company that I ended up selling to Kaplan, the, which is uh, owned by the, the Washington Post. And I kind of looked for something different at that point. I wanted to try something different than I did in the past. And 
a new opportunity came my way by reading in a Wall Street Journal that the claim games was going bankrupt. And I knew how bankruptcy worked because I did the one for Activision. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to call the trustee directly and have a chat. And that's the person who's appointed by the court to clean up the company or sell its assets or, and find a new buyer. So I, I called the trustee there in New York, in Long Island, and I said, hey, I'm interested. I, I have a lot of experience in the game industry. I would like to buy the company. He said, great. Well, you should make an offer. I said, well, yeah, I could make an offer, but I could also tell you what I want to pay now and, and be the first bid. And there's an advantage for being the first bid, but not necessarily a lot of advantage. The first bid, you can sign a contract with the court and say, look, I'll pay X dollars and be the first. And there's no one bidding, you win. So it's a nice advantage, right? So I, I said, I'll offer 100000 The guy was laughing on the phone for $100,000. He was laughing. He said, that you must be ridiculous. We're never going to agree to that. I said, look, my offer stands. Why don't you consider it? And if someone wants to pay more, great. Two months go by and I get a call from the trustee. Say, hey, is your offer still valid? I said, yeah, why not? And so quickly, I, I put together the contract. I offer 100000 and that's a commitment. And I knew it was a very low ball and it's going to be quite expensive to get it, but I figured, why not? Let me get into the race. And a court is required, the trustee is required to advertise that there is an auction going on and that there will be a sale for a claim. And a claim had a big name. There was at one point the number one video game player in the market. It had Mortal Kombat, NBA Jam. It was really, really popular. They were way bigger than Activision when we started, way bigger. But they went into, they got into trouble. And this is a different story for why they got into trouble. But I got lucky because the previous owners of a claim got into financial trouble. They made some mistakes. They didn't file what they should have filed. There were some issues there. So they didn't participate. And the auction was beginning August. And you know, in New York in August, everybody's gone. The whole financial market is gone. Everybody on vacation. So I show up August. I think it was 2005. No one shows up at the auction. The judge is like livid, say, where are your bidders? And there are no bidders. So I get the whole thing for hundred grand. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, I got it. I flew right away to Korea, South Korea, and I decided to go and emulate what they're doing over there, which is online games. And there were really innovators. And I took that innovation and I brought it back to the U.S., and then from there, it ended up getting acquired, right, by a company, Playdom? Yes. So I started building it, and we had about 17 million players starting to do really well. And we got approached by Playdom, who was mostly a Facebook game company. These Facebook games at that time were doing great. And a lot of people thought that Facebook is going to clean house and own the game market. And so they came in with a lot of capital and decided to buy a claim. And the main reason I was selling, I was willing to do the sales because I had a VC at the company and I knew that, and I had some debt and I knew that unless something new, I got some new investors, I would get into difficulty because we were still losing money, growing the company pretty fast. And so I said, okay, well, if they buy it, maybe I'll just combine and get some shares and play them. So we make a deal, the VCs are happy, we do a deal, and just then, Disney decides to buy Playdom. So Disney bought Playdom. Disney 
you know, it's a company that tried to be in the video business, has today probably had that time under 2% market share, not much for a global media company like they did. And uh, that was not their cup of tea. You know, action online, massively multiplayer games with free to play where you don't, you buy items inside the game is a whole new idea. It was not something they were prepared for. Anyway, so I sold and exited right away and then pondered what, what should I do next? And that was my next chapter. Yeah, Playdom actually slash Disney ended up shutting down a claim after just about three months or so after they acquired it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the games that were operating were pretty significant, but they decided that was not, it's not on Facebook and it was not why they bought it, played with them. They both played them for the Facebook type of games and people call casual gaming. And the games we had were hardcore games. In that transaction, was it an all stock deal, part stock deal, or were you just given cash as the buyout? It was mostly cash and a little bit of stock. It was not a great exit for me. It was not a great outcome, but it was something better than nothing. I would say selling was a mistake because we all know what happened with online games. It became the, the standard. You know, League of Legends became the biggest game in the world. And the whole, you know, Steam, that whole movement worked in our favor because we were among the first to have these free-to-play massively multiplayer games. So we had a platform and we had everything we needed to compete. It just we ran out of steam financially. And so that made me ponder how you finance a company sometimes has a lot more to say than the strategy you take for your company. Because if you don't have the right financial structure and you run into trouble, then you could lose your business. So that kind of made me think a lot about what needs to change in the financial world. Yeah. Capital structure is really important. I, I get asked a lot from listeners of the show, like, what are some of the biggest deal breakers for me when I'm looking to invest in a company? And capital structure is one of them. You know, Significant debt, too much debt is one of the big things that's just an, almost an automatic disqualifier for me because as you just mentioned, it's just one of those things that can just absolutely plague a, a company. Yeah, we took venture debt and venture debt is debt that you put on top of your VC and that is completely inappropriate. It's actually not suitable for a growing company. It's only good if you're going to, for example, buy equipment, machinery. That's why you need debt. But having debt to grow a company is, is terrible. I want to quickly go back to when you exited Activision and ask about how you thought about holding, selling those shares that you had, because it's not often that we have a guest on the show that had an exit and is able to own the shares of a public company after. How did you consider that? How did you think about holding the shares for selling them? And how long did you end up holding the shares for? Yeah. So when you are at a public company, publicly trading, you own shares. They're restricted because you are an officer of the company. And there's this rule called Rule 144 that restricts when you can sell the shares and how much you can sell. So while you're at the company as an officer, and I was on the board of the company, and I was a, an officer of the company, you're subject to these rules. And so you can sell a little bit after the earnings report, and that's it. So that was fine. When I left, it frees up your ability to sell more. 
because you are no longer an officer and you have to wait a certain amount of time. But anyway, going past that, I did sell some shares to get some diversification over time and was able to sell shares over time. And the share price kept growing, growing, which was great. Gave me a lot of options to get liquidity. What did you learn from your experiences with Activision and Acclaim Games that you took to your next and current venture, Start Engine? What did you learn that you still use to this day? And what did you learn that has helped you avoid potential pitfalls with Start Engine? I mean, the word pitfall is ironic because that was one of our biggest games at Activision. Pitfall is a legendary. Here's the deal. What I've learned first is the, the mistake I made with Activision was leaving because frankly, staying with a fast growing company is a great idea. Now, if, if you leave because you want to do something different, fine. That's what was my case. But financially, it was better to stay because I had a lot of stock options, a lot of stock. Okay, you're betting your future on one company, but that's fine. And if you believe in your strategy, if you believe in the future of the industry that you're in, you can keep growing. Why not? Grow it as much as you can and stay with it. And the same time, one thing I did was a claim. I believe the whole industry is going to go to free-to-play games and multiplayer games. That was my pitch was that idea of paying every month for a game as a subscription was not necessarily the future. And that World of Warcraft had that subscription system, very successful game. But I thought, you know, it's going to be challenged by people going to make them free. And people rather play games that are free. Now, it turns out, and I studied the model, the free-to-play games make actually more money than the subscription games. Why? Because the 5% or 10% of the players who play for the game are paying more than 10x, sometimes 20x of what you would get in a subscription. I mean, some people are spending thousands of dollars, right? So my thesis was correct. And when League of Legends came out and the founder, the CEO of League of Legends saw one of my speech that I made on free-to-play, decided to change his model to free-to-play. And guess what happens next? League of Legends becomes the biggest game in the world as a free-to-play game, by the way. No monthly subscription. They did very well. That became a monster. And so I think what I feel like lesson I have from my mistakes was if you see something amazing, stick with it because it's going to keep growing. And that's where it brings me to Start Engine. And that's a perspective I have now that I may have not had when I was at Activision. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. 
Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. For those who may not be familiar with crowdfunding or its origin, please tell us what crowdfunding is and how Title II of the JOBS Act in June 2015 made equity crowdfunding possible. Well, here's the deal. I was thinking about the future and I started Start Engine as a, an accelerator, a school for entrepreneurs, because I felt hey, LA should be a technology city. Los Angeles has a lot to offer. Los Angeles invented email. Some of, you know, pay-per-click, you know, what Google uses for their business model was created here in LA. A lot of technology, the satellites were built in LA. So I thought, hey, why isn't LA full of these accelerators, schools for startups? So I built that. I started that you know, just because I felt I could contribute and started investing in a lot of entrepreneurs. And what I noticed was a lot of them could not get financing. They could not get the VCs to invest. I would make the introductions. I would pitch the company. I would put a lot of my energy behind it. And the result was discouragement. Couldn't raise money, especially the women-led companies that I would invest in would not get capital. And a minority-based business, forget about it. I mean, it's just the numbers aren't, aren't there. And so as an investor, I don't think I did a very good job. Even the, at the end of the day, the fund is reasonably successful. It's not a huge hit, but it did well. I didn't do a good job investing because I should have only invested in 22 white males from Stanford, 22-year-olds, you know, because that's what VCs like to invest in. They invest in people that look like them. And they like to invest in these young, very, I would say, fast-talking entrepreneurs. And I thought, hey, you know what? That is strange. I did not understand this. There was a disconnect for me, complete disconnect. As I was pondering them and wondering, how do you fix this? How do we change finance? How do we not change the narrative? I read, again, in the Wall Street Journal, pretty good handy tool for me, that Congress signed the Jobs Act. And I had no idea. I mean, I thought it was a, a new act to create jobs for America. And that's always interesting. But, you know, it's well, how do you create jobs? You know, you regulate, deregulate, you do all sorts of stuff. And when I was reading it, it had nothing to do with that. 
it had to do with introducing a whole new way for companies to raise money called crowdfunding, where you can raise money directly from the general public. Now, why would that matter? Well, for the last 80 years, ordinary person, not wealthy, could not invest in startups. So if your neighbor started Uber and you wanted to invest, you couldn't. Why? Because you had to be accredited. You had to be wealthy. What is an accredited investor? Well, it's someone who makes you know, 250000 a year minimum for the last two or three years and has a foreseeable income of 250000 or a million dollars of assets outside of their home. I mean, it's quite steep and it only applies to about 5% of our country. And that 5% has the privilege to invest in all these great new ideas and startups, but not the ordinary citizens. And I thought, wow, that's very strange. It seems a little unfair. And I'm not from the financial world at that time. And so I tried to learn more why this existed, why it happened. And it turns out during the depression in 1929, the Great Depression, the SEC was formed in 1932 with the express task to protect investors. Because at that time in 29, people were margin leveraging their money up to 90%. (laughs) And not only that, Sometimes the number of shares you thought the company had, you were wrong. There were five times more shares, but you didn't know. There was no regulation. So the SEC came in and regulated and said, look, if you want to raise money from the public, you have to register with us, which means we will check everything. And we know we're going to make sure that everything is done right. Anyway, 80 years later, this new law comes out that says, finally, the Jobs Act, finally, equity crowdfunding, the idea that a company can go raise money directly from the public. I read it in April 2012 when it was signed. And I started reading it page to page, cover to cover again and again until I understood what was this thing all about. It was innovative. It was groundbreaking. I had to educate my attorneys about it. They didn't understand the nuances because they would say, yeah, I I can help you with that. And they would say things. I said, no, page 23, chapter number five, look at this. Oh, yeah, you're right. Anyway, it took four years for that law to go into action, to actually become real. During that time, I was investing in these startups who mostly were failing. I think 90% of my investments failed pretty much in the first few months. And the ones that survived were very resilient and great entrepreneurs, and I really admired them. And that's fine. That was the deal. And I wondered what happens if I had crowdfunding and I could have all of them succeed. That would not be such a bad idea after all. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to pivot the company into an equity crowdfunding business from an accelerator business. Now, why would I do that? Well, I thought, hold on a second. If I can help 20 companies a year and invest in them, with equity crowdfunding, I could help 2,000 companies a year, maybe more. Much bigger impact, huge impact. Well, I don't think I necessarily knew exactly how the market would evolve and how it starts. So I started making some assumptions. So I looked at a model that I understood, which called Kickstarter, which was a crowdfunding model where people could go and back a project and give money to entrepreneurs and get a t-shirt or get the product, but that was it. I don't know if you remember Oculus Rift. 
That was a VR virtual reality headset. It started on Kickstarter. And the first time they launched their campaign, in a matter of weeks, everybody went crazy for this idea. And within weeks, they raised $3.5 million from 7,000 backers who wanted this Oculus Rift so badly. I mean, they, they would gift money with the idea that the money that the company got could make the Oculus Rift and then deliver to them. Now, there was risk involved because maybe the company would fail and they would not get their headset. They didn't care. And then they went on the community on the bulletin boards and everybody was writing about Oculus Rift. Now, unbeknown to these 7,000 backers, Mark Andreessen, who is a huge venture capitalist, went in and invested 80 million in the company. And he sits on the board of Facebook. So he invested, that was pretty quiet. And then what happened, the company got sold within a year to Facebook for $2 billion. Now, those 7,000 people did not receive their headsets, but they had put their money, hoping to get the headsets and didn't get any of the $2 billion. And I saw this and I said, this is so unfair. They took the risk. They're the ones who made Oculus Rift something. Why wouldn't they get something? Well, I didn't understand that the regulation, the laws were designed that they couldn't invest and the company couldn't offer the shares. That was illegal. So now we understand that, right? But okay, but now we have something, equity crowdfunding. We can solve it. So now the next Oculus Rift can have 7,000 investors sell for $2 billion, and everybody makes 100 times their money. What's wrong with that picture? That feels part of our, our heritage, the American dream. One of the things that I've taken from this conversation so far is that I need to get a Wall Street Journal subscription. Well, that may date a lot of people because obviously I've been reading it since I'm in my 20s. And I think the Wall Street Journal is still very well written and still appropriate for people to read. But I know there are other places that can get your information, similar information. So it's still one of the better places because they have good editors, by the way. But I'm not here to sell the Wall Street Journal. I'm here to tell you about equity crowdfunding. So here's the deal. As the law was written, I knew that I could build a business that will allow entrepreneurs to put their company on our website and solicit investments from the mass, everybody, anybody. Now, as I mentioned to you, 5% of our country is accredited. Most of them are in the retirement age and are not participating that much in risky startups, as you can imagine. I mean, if you're in your 70s or 80s, the last thing you want to do is wait 10 years for an exit. You probably will exit first before the investment. So therefore, there is a disconnect here. So we're talking about what? 100,000, 200,000 angels, 400 VC firms. That was it. That's your market. And if you don't get money from VCs or angels, what are you supposed to do? The banks won't lend to you. You have to go to your friends and family, but that goes just so far. What are you supposed to do? I pondered that and I said, look, the answer could be the future of finance is at play here. The future of finance. Why is that? The same way as we talked about the future of video games was rich entertainment on a medium that was accessible like the compact disc. But it was also the same thing with games becoming free and you can invest in them and they're being online. That's the future of games. 
today, most games are downloaded and they're free. And I think the same thing with finance. And then that's a strange concept that the world of finance is going to change dramatically. The future of finance, what is? And that was the question I had for myself. And the answer I, I came up with, I believe the future of finance is in equity crowdfunding. Here's why. Because it democratizes access to capital. Anybody now can go access capital. They don't have to be part of the elite. They don't have to graduate from Stanford. They don't have to have a certain gender, creed, whatever. They can be anybody. As long as you are good at what you're proposing and you're able to give, I would call it a compelling offering with a well-defined message, wow, you can raise capital. It frees people from the elite. It frees people to have more freedom and not give up control as they would with VCs. So I saw this as a natural. And you know what the answer was from the lawyers and my advisors and people I, I hang with? No, it's not going to work because no one will invest their money with a credit card online. Forget about it. That doesn't work that way. And the other answer I said, you're going to get sued by all of these investors. So you're going to get sued out of your business. So, I mean, when we talk about naysayers, oh my God. I mean, with Activision, we had a lot of naysayers because they said the video game world was dead. Here, no one said finance was dead. Here they said, you're going to be dead. You're going to get taken out early and it's unsustainable. And then when you hear this, this is when you move forward. This is when you say, you know what? Maybe I'm against what the, the common understanding is of the world of finance. Maybe there's something there. Why not explore this? Why not go and look for what it's going to look like? Why not build it from scratch? So we were the first on the market with a website, and we launched Start Engine as an equity crowdfunding business. I want to talk about that Oculus Rift example for a second. I completely agree with how it's not really fair that those 7,000 people that put up the money and risked their money didn't really get any return at all for the sale. But from Oculus Rift's perspective, why would they want to do equity crowdfunding if they could just do Kickstarter, right? Because Kickstarter, they keep, in theory, you know, obviously they sold a piece to that Facebook investor that you mentioned, but in theory, they keep 100% of the business if they do a Kickstarter campaign. Whereas if they do equity crowdfunding, they're giving up some of their equity, which means when they sell or exit, they're not getting as much money. I mean, it sounds like they could be successful. Companies could be successful with a, like a Kickstarter campaign. So why would they want to do equity crowdfunding and give away some of their equity? You make a very good point. Why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? You know, But that doesn't seem like the economics can last that way so long. Because now that equity crowdfunding exists, people who are going to go on Kickstarter are probably going to think about why should I not get shares in that company? Why am I giving away my money? And by the way, they're taking some risk and they're not getting any reward for it. That doesn't seem fair. Now, it's true. Many of the companies who come on Start Engine have started on Kickstarter with a little campaign. They call it proof of concept. So then they invite those backers to become investors. So that works well. So I, I don't think we're killing crowdfunding. We call it reward crowdfunding. That has its life. It's actually a very successful business. You know, a lot of people are artists, a lot of people are not for profit businesses. They do very well. But the answer is very simple. If you're a company, if you're an entrepreneur, 
you can go on Kickstarter, maybe raise two or three million, but you can't raise 20. Very few uh, projects have raised that kind of money. But in equity crowdfunding, as of today, hundreds have. So equity crowdfunding offers more access to capital than reward crowdfunding. It aligns the shareholders very well with the mission of the company. And they can in turn become the big loud voice for the marketplace and be helpful. So in a way, I think we align, our model is, is, is fair because it aligns the interests of both parties. The company needs money, the investors need equity so they can get an upside in their investment down the road. And by doing that, you have the ability to have a lot more success for your company. Start Engine specializes in regulation crowdfunding and regulation A+. What are these two regulations and why did you choose to focus on them? So I decided to focus on equity crowdfunding. There are three regulations in them. One is for accredited investors and some people call it Title II of the Jobs Act. It's complicated stuff, but it basically says that if you want to raise money from wealthy people, you can do it online now and publicly before you had to be private. Now, there's two other things in the Jobs Act that are phenomenal. One is called regulation crowdfunding. That rule said that you can raise up to a million dollars on a crowdfunding platform like Start Engine from anybody. Now, there's some limitations. Someone can't invest more than 5% of their income across their investments in a year, things like that. But they can invest a minimum of $2,000 for sure. That's pretty good. And they can use credit cards. That was written in the rule, which is unbelievable. Now, then the other rule is called Regulation A+, and that says you can raise up to $50 million, five zero, $50 million, but you have to take your offering and go to the SEC and they review it. So it costs you about $100,000 in legal fees, and you have to audit your company that costs total about $100,000, maybe a little bit more. That's still a pretty good rule. And the nice thing about it is you can have investors invest up to 10% of their net worth or income or net worth outside of their home. So if they own, if they have a million dollars, they can put in 100,000. But let's say most people, let's say they have $100,000 in savings, they could put $10,000 in, into this deal. So both regulations are great. Now, on March 15th, something new is happening. It's, there's an upgrade that was voted in. And on March 15th, the Security Exchange Commission announced that by March 15th, they're raising the limit of $1 million for regulation crowdfunding to $5 million. That's a major, major, major move. It's an enhancement. And the $50 million goes to $75 million. Now, why would that be a big deal? Well, a lot of people did not take equity crowdfunding as seriously as they could have because they said, oh, if I can only raise a million, that's not enough. I need more. We've raised money for 600 plus companies, over you know, $300 million. I mean, we've done great with this, but a lot of companies were kind of in the middle between $1 million not being enough and $10 million is too much for them and they can't get it right. They're too early but they needed three to four million. There's a sweet spot there. And with this new enhancement, this solves the problem. And so equity crowdfunding with regulation crowdfunding, it's very easy to do. It costs, when we bring in a customer, it costs them nothing. 
They don't have to spend a single penny. They have to spend money on getting their financials reviewed. They may need some legal advice to clean up their company, whatever. It's thousands of bucks. It's nothing. It's really not a lot of money. And they can raise up to $5 million a year using this regulation. So I thought, hold on a second. This is even better. The gift keeps giving. The gift of the JOBS Act is even better now. And I'm myself so enthusiastic and pumped by this, this new regulation upgrade that I think it's going to help the equity crowdfunding business grow even faster. The SEC is also kind of rewriting or tweaking the rules for being an accredited investor too, aren't they? Well, you could argue that they made a very small change. What they did is they said, if you are a financial expert, so for example, you're a CPA or you have a license to sell securities, you work for a broker dealer, you work for E-Trade, you can invest like an accredited investor. And that's it. And that, you're talking about not even a million people, not even. So, Is it that few? And the reason I say that is because I personally thought that that was a pretty big change because I'm, I have a license that's very similar to the CPA. It's the CMA. And I think that would also qualify me. And I don't have the necessarily net worth yet to be an accredited investor. But right. I think with some of the licenses that I have accounting wise and being in accounting, a lot of my friends are CPAs. So that kind of made us all accredited investors. But then how many people are CPAs and CMAs and how many people are brokers? Okay, so maybe 2 million people, but we're still not covering, we have 350 million people in this country. There's probably 30 to 40 million people are active investors. So that doesn't cover them. I mean, you're covering, yes, they made an effort. They went forward with a proposal and they did less than what Europe does. Europe says you can be a sophisticated investor if you have investing experience, but that it was out of license, right? But here they were very specific. You have to have one of these licenses. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a big number, but I think you're right that relatively speaking, you know, in terms of the whole population, it's not big. You know, when you think two million people, you're like, wow, that's a lot of people. But when you think about 350 million, it's really not much. When you talk about the American public, where they have this concept of savings, ten trillion dollars of savings, and all of the money that the American consumer represents. The accredited investor is a tiny piece. It's not that much. You mentioned that people can invest with credit cards. How do you think about that? Do you think that's dangerous? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of my friends that I play golf with always have this question for me. It's like, hold on a second. How is someone able to use a credit card? Well, I say it's built into the rule. Okay, but I don't understand. So that basically... If they are from the financial world, they will say, well, that means they're borrowing the money because they have to pay the credit card in a month or over time. And I think that's one of the innovations. You know, I think the innovation of credit card is significant because it makes it very accessible. You don't have to go in and enter your bank information. You can just put your credit card in and it makes it a very fast purchase. You know, Apple Pay, you know, simple. People do that. It fits, I think, in the world of satisfying a market out there, which is the consumer, how they pay typically is with a credit card. That's how it works. So I think in adding securities, shares, buying shares to the credit card is logical. 
I think in terms of the process, that makes sense to me. But what concerns me about that is that people are going to rack up credit card debt. You know, I think it could be potentially dangerous. The idea, like, I, I like how it makes it easier, but it worries me a little bit that somebody I know could just buy shares in a relatively illiquid, and we'll get to how it can be more liquid in the future soon, but a relatively illiquid security with debt, specifically high interest debt. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, you know, a lot of people have margin accounts and those are not cheap. And I would say our average investment is it's around a thousand bucks. So typically that's not going to take you out. It's still in the realms of reasonable. That's a really good point. What is the process for a company to raise capital through a platform like Start Engine? It's pretty simple. They apply, they go online, they go to startengine.com, they type in a few things, they tell us who they are, and then we get on a call. I have a, a bunch of people who at our company talk to entrepreneurs all day long, and they talk about the process. They need to learn how equity crowdfunding works for themselves, how they're going to raise their money, and then we need to make sure that it's a good fit. They're able to go on our page and you know, the company's formed and a lot of different little details that we go through our, our own review. We review every company carefully. We have to do that. And if it's a fit, we onboard them. We have a team that does just that. They go in and they onboard companies. They talk to the CEO. They talk to the CPA. They do all the things they need to do to get them live. We rewrite the page for them. We also help them. We're kind of like a mini agency inside of our company, help them with their marketing. And then they go live. And they didn't have to put up much money at all. They had to do, you know, they had, if they have their financials, get it reviewed, that costs a few hundred dollars. And then they may have needed an attorney to make sure that their shares they're issuing are correct. They have the shareholder vote. They have the board resolutions. These are things that typically you go through anyway when you raise money. And we make sure it's all done right. That is key. It's done right so that when the investor comes on our page, they make the decision of whether they should invest or not. Does a company have to be at a certain stage in order to start? We have not found any correlation regarding the stage of the company, frankly, for success. What we have found is three things that are important. And I think your listeners would understand it. First, you want the CEO of the company to be willing to put themselves out there. That's important. They put themselves out there. They're going to go out and solicit, and they're going to talk to all their friends and family. They're going to go on Facebook, on social media. They're really loud. The second thing is a compelling offering, something that people relate to. It's exciting. It's something you believe in. And the third is a well-defined audience. Who are the people you think should invest? When all three come together, the campaign is a success. We've seen it. It's amazing. It works. You mentioned the due diligence that you guys are doing at Start Engine, but what other due diligence should individual investors be doing before making an investment in a company raising capital through equity crowdfunding? And how do you go about valuing a business like this as an individual investor? Well, I think the, the investor needs to go on the page, read it, and then look at the comments because guess what's happening? The entire investment community is writing things on the page, commenting the same way as you would see. Wall Street bets, where people are making all these comments. Well, it's the same thing here on Start Engine. People are making comments. And guess what? Sometimes they come up with stuff that we had no idea. 
And we may have to either get the CEO to correct information. I mean, it's really amazing how the crowd has a voice. People call it the wisdom of the crowd. They have a lot to say. So we think, even though we've done our due diligence, we did our work, you and I know that's not the end all of everything. I think when you add the crowd to it, now you get the real story. We're going to talk about the secondary market in just a second, but putting that aside, how can investors in these private companies get their capital back? When there is a liquidity event, how long is it before investors receive their share of the returns? Typically, a liquidity event happens between five and seven years after the company has raised the capital. So that's a pretty long stretch. I've had one deal that took me 20 years to get out. And I didn't get out in a very good way, meaning I had to sell my shares back to the company for a song and a dance. And I think this idea that the consumer has to go through five to seven years is pretty harsh. And you said it several times on this conversation. You said, you know, illiquid shares. You said no market for it, how you get your money out. It's a big question. And you would argue, hold on a second, if the Security Exchange Commission is permitting equity crowdfunding, what are they thinking? How are those investors going to realize their returns? How long do they have to wait? Well, if you look at today, the average is probably seven years for private equity to become sold. So what is an exit? You know, going public on the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, or being sold to another company. And the shareholders receive either stock or cash. And they keep going and they can, if they receive cash, they can reinvest in another deal. If they receive stock, they can sell it on the market if it's public. So that's what people call exits. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance 
with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. It seems more companies are choosing to stay private for a lot longer than companies historically have. We're seeing a lot more unicorn private companies these days like Airbnb, Facebook, Uber, all these companies that took a lot longer to go public than historically companies have. With companies waiting so much longer for IPOs, how does this impact equity crowdfunding? If you go back into the old days of Silicon Valley, Intel, when they went public, raised $10 million. Okay, so now you get the picture. Today, if you want to go public, you have to raise $2 billion. It's a whole different story. And we're only talking about 40 years later. $2 billion. It's reserved for the very few, only the very few. You're talking about a couple, 300 companies a year go public. In fact, right now, most companies... If they want to go to the public markets, they don't even go public. They do these reverse mergers, also called SPAC. They do these reverse mergers with existing companies that are designed just to raise money, and they're not even going public on their own. And so you wonder what happened. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Regulation came in and made it very expensive and very hard to go public. So unless you're a big company like an Uber, Airbnb, your prospects of going public is very, very low. You can't find a bank who will take you out on the public market. And even if you did find one, you can't raise much. And if you did raise some money, what happens the minute you go on the market, you get shorted by all the hedge funds and your stock goes to penny stock. And now you're like in a different zone. You can't raise any more money. It is really harsh. Small companies, unfortunately, do not belong on the public markets. It is unfortunate. I say that because I believe in the public markets. It's just the way it's been. That's the nature of the beast today. So how does this impact equity crowdfunding and specifically individual investors who are potentially betting on a future IPO to get their liquidity event from an equity crowdfunded investment? Well, I think it's a factor that I think it's a problem. Frankly, I would say it's a big problem. The idea that you invest in a promising company and you have to wait seven years is a problem. It's not necessarily the way it should be because consumers may not have the strengths or the wherewithal to wait seven years or longer. So I would say that's one of the, I think, issues with equity crowdfunding is lack of liquidity. I would say that's a big issue. And that's an issue that Start Engine is trying to solve. And, and that's with secondary market, which I've mentioned a couple times so far throughout this interview. I mentioned in the intro that I'm an investor in Start Engine through the platform. So I like the business in general, but this concept of a secondary market is arguably the most exciting thing to me about the business. 
Tell us a bit about what the secondary market is that you're building with Start Engine. So we're in year five for Start Engine. Three years ago, I saw this problem that we are talking about, and I needed to solve it. I believe that lack of liquidity is a hurdle for equity crowdfunding. The idea that we're going to grow into the future of finance without providing people access to liquidity, I think that's a problem. That's a big problem. Probably the number one problem. Most people were saying to me, oh, no, no, Howard, the number one problem is fraud. It turns out that's not the number one problem. Fraud has not been a factor in our industry. So I went, my classic Howard Marks move, went to start reading about how do you create a stock market from scratch? How do you do that? Well, I read that in the regulation in the Jobs Act, it said that the shares are freely tradable for regulation and crowdfunding after one year and for regulation A right away, tradable. Okay. So then I went to my attorneys, I started talking, and they didn't have necessary solution for it. They said, well, they can go on the NASDAQ, they have a small capital markets for NASDAQ. I said, yeah, but they have to go public and they have to have quarterly financials. It's too expensive. It costs a million dollars a year. These are small companies. Maybe they raised a million. They're not going to spend a million a year. So I found a regulation called the ATS, Alternative Trading Systems. That is also known as dark pools. And what it is, is 20 years ago, the Security Exchange Commission decided that they want to create markets that can compete with the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. And those markets typically work after hours. So when the market closes, then these other markets are open. And they're all mostly for institutional investors. So it's not for the consumer. Uh, you know, The people who are listening to your podcast are not going on a dark pool to invest or sell shares. It's typically institutional investors, hedge funds, and broker dealers. That's what's going on. So there is a thing called the aftermarket. There is a thing. So I said, well, why can't I use this to create a market for regulation crowdfunding and regulation A? So I challenged my lawyers on that idea. And so we filed a proposal with the regulators. And the proposal was to create a marketplace. It took us three and a half years. Last April, April 2020, we were approved. And I can't tell you, it happened on my birthday, on April 16. So on my birthday, I get the only stock market for equity crowdfunding approved. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. And so we were preparing for it. We didn't know we were going to get approved. And so now we have to scramble and build it, right? And we built it and launched it end of October, 2020. And that is the beginning, I think, of, of a new opportunity for our whole marketplace. You know, I talked to you several times about the future of finance. What is the future of finance? Well, today, finance is what? The big banks that take out the big companies public, and the small companies, they don't even talk to them. And then if you go to mid-market, these are broker dealers that are smaller than the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley's of the world. They're only interested in a company that does at least 10 million in revenue, minimum. But that's, most companies don't do that. So then if you go down the food chain, it's like, a, you know, like the big pyramid and then the bottom of the pyramid, that's everybody. The 5 million small businesses in the United States 
are at the bottom of the pyramid. <laughs> the mid-sized broker-dealers are not interested in them. So I saw this as a huge blue ocean. I said, look, if equity crowdfunding handles just the five million small businesses in our country, just that, I don't know, that seems pretty big to me. I don't know about you, but that seems big, five million companies. And, and what do I need? If I had 1% of the market, 50,000 companies. I mean, it's no, the big brokers, they work with dozens of companies, if not a hundred. And I would do 50,000? That's pretty big. So I see, you see, I'm looking at scale. I'm looking at the scale of what we're building here. But with a missing component was the liquidity, this idea that if you go on Start Engine to invest in a company, you can trade. Now think about this, Robert, this idea that you can go on Start Engine to do equity crowdfunding, to invest in a company, and a year later you can trade is spectacular. To me, that's an amazing idea. And that takes, in my view, equity crowdfunding to a whole new level. And now the missing piece has been solved. We have the missing piece, which is we can issue the shares and we can allow the investors to trade. Think about that. What are we doing here? We're replicating Wall Street for small business. Now, hold on a second. Why has that not existed before? Wall Street for small business, because they're not interested in, in it. But the biggest industry in our country, the biggest market, the biggest economics are small business. We all know that. Big business are important, but they're not everybody. 70% of all jobs in our country are small business. So come on, really? And now you're telling me, oh, you know, the banks are right. They should work with the big companies, but they're forgetting the most important part of our economy, 70%. Now, something I'll tell you that you may have not thought about. The stock market, New York Stock Exchange and uh, NASDAQ represent 10% of our economy in terms of the wealth. Real estate, 10% of all the real estate of our country is in REITs that are on the stock market, Okay. 90% are not. They're on limited partnerships. 90% are private. Same for companies. 10% of the wealth, you know, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, you know, those are big companies, trillion dollars, right? But the 5 million small businesses, what do you think that's worth? 100 trillion. So 90% of the economy is locked in private hands. My job is to unlock that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have a ton to add because I just I agree with it so much. You know, I like I said, that's probably the most exciting thing to me about Start Engine. The business is this idea of the secondary market. I really like it. Only Start Engine is traded on your secondary market right now. Why is that? You mentioned that it's almost like a seasoning period. Companies have to wait a year or so. Is that why? We are at the beginning, and we need to bring as many companies as we can on our trading marketplace. And like it was at the beginning when I started equity crowdfunding, it was impossible to convince companies to come on because they were afraid and what will happen and it's a new way of raising money. I don't understand it. So now they go and do something different. They're like, okay, Howard, I raised money on equity crowdfunding and you want me to trade? So I'm convincing companies. We've signed a bunch of companies already that have publicly announced it will trade, but not many. And I don't know when this podcast will become live, but hopefully by the time it goes live, we will have several companies on it. Our goal is to have thousands of companies on it. But we had to start somewhere. 
And that's how we started. Is the goal to eventually have all of the companies that raise in Start Engine to be able to trade their shares on the secondary market, assuming that they're issuing common stock, not convertible nodes, bonds, or preferred? That is absolutely right, Robert. So the, here's the idea. When you come on Start Engine to invest, you can trade. Is there any cost or reason why a company raising money wouldn't want to trade? There are some costs involved, and there's a thing called blue sky. And I don't want to go into too much of detail, but every state has a different rule about how you should trade. They're not unified. And we found a way to do it through a, a new regula- another regulation, and we're able to do it. And so it costs the company about $10,000 to trade. And then they have to pay maybe every year another couple thousand. So it's very reasonable. They don't have to do quarterly financials. They can just do what they normally do once a year or twice a year, depending on the regulation they used. It's very reasonable. Very reasonable as a means to provide liquidity. Typically, if you want to go on the national markets, it costs millions of dollars to do it. You know, lawyers and accountants and bankers, and it's, just, it's insane. So if I say to you, look, $10,000, you can do it. That doesn't seem so bad. We haven't raised the bar that high. I'm thinking about the founders of these companies and I could be wrong, but my guess is that they probably like this idea of the secondary market because you know, oftentimes founders have a lot of their personal net worth stuck in these companies. And if they're not public, they often don't really have much choice in terms of getting any cash out of the deal or their business if they need it. Whereas it sounds like as an owner, they could potentially sell some of their shares maybe on this secondary market. Is that something that's possible for owners? And I know there's regulation around being a over 10% owner of a company in public markets. Is there anything like that in the secondary market? Yes. So we do permit companies, officers, insiders to sell, but we put speed bumps on them. And the speed bump is to protect the other investors. So you don't want an insider who knows something to change the marketplace. So we protect that with the right speed bumps that will slow down the sale of any significant amount of shares to a very small portion. Basically, we're just in, as a nutshell, like for example, we'll allow you know, someone who is an insider to not trade more than 1% of the last 30 days, for example. So it's small, but it's still liquidity gives the, the entrepreneur and the original investor some form of liquidity. And if they're patient, you know, they can sell some over time. Obviously, if they want to sell their business, they can always do that. There are plenty of buyers out there maybe interested. You know, that's another option. But I think what we've built here allows entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams because they don't have to sell. They can still keep building their future while having some access to liquidity. It's, I think it's the best of both worlds, frankly. I think it's great. Yeah, I think there's probably quite a few founders that want to keep their business, but they ultimately sell because of personal reasons and they need the cash for you know, X, Y, and Z. That's right. And it puts a lot of pressure on these founders, on these entrepreneurs. And if we can relieve that pressure slightly, allowing them to sell and disclosing that to the investors, to the shareholders that they sold a portion of their shares, that's great. I think access to liquidity for founders, insiders is a big innovation. I think access to liquidity for the investors is an incredible innovation. And I think if you put the whole thing together, the idea that you can now be a small business 
and do what the big guys do on the stock market, I think it's incredible. What's interesting too is, as I think about this, founders, you know, I think sometimes they make decisions in their business based on sometimes their personal life. It's like, you know, maybe I know that this probably isn't the best decision in the long term for the business, but I need to sell this in the next one to three years so I can get some liquidity out. So they're making short-term decisions because they personally need it, whereas it's not necessarily in the benefit of the company long-term because they need the liquidity. But now it sounds like founders are going to be able to think a lot more long-term because they're going to have access to liquidity. They can have access to liquidity. They can think long-term, which is better for the business. And they don't have to have pressure from their existing investors. Because if the investor is getting a little antsy saying, hey, you know what, what's going on? Is your company, can we get some liquidity? Hey, just go on the the secondary market, just sell. Oh, okay. Conversation's done. (laughs) It's a big innovation. Those speed bumps that you guys put in place for the founders selling shares, is that something that you guys, you and StartEngine as a company have chosen to do or is that required by the regulation and law? That is something we chose to do. There are regulations around insider shares called Rule 144. And they exist on the stock markets, but they don't exist for our market. But we believe that we have a responsibility to make sure that it's a fair marketplace. So you mentioned insider shares, but if you think about the stock markets, typically you have a lot of things going on, including the insider selling shares, which exists, you know, rule 144, you disclose it, it's now public, they follow the SEC, they're selling shares in the company, companies traded publicly. Some people see this as a negative, so they sell their shares. Other people say, okay, this is good. The, The founder has some money off the table. Now they can focus more on the business. And so we decided to put these in place because we wanted to create a marketplace that gives confidence to investors. Is there insider trading with equity crowdfunding on the secondary market? I think technically it's possible. We will monitor that. I think if you look at the stock market today, and a good example is the GameStop stock that went crazy. The idea on the stock market, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, is you can short shares, which means you, you can borrow shares, sell them, and then bet that they're going to go down, and then buy them later. And you know, gives your shares back to whoever you borrowed from. And that's called shorting shares. And sometimes you short more shares than there are shares on the market. And that's called naked shorts. And then you saw what happened with GameStop when the share price went way up. It created a short squeeze. People went crazy. The price went way up. The regulators got scared. Everybody got scared because they thought people would lose their money. Well, you know what? That exists today in the stock market. So are all the options, puts and calls, and all of the different instruments that you hear about. Probably there's more money in options than probably in stocks, which is kind of strange, but okay, that's the way it is. We decided for our marketplace to keep it simple. It's peer-to-peer. Now, what does that mean, peer-to-peer? It means there are no market makers in the middle. There's no shorting. There are no options. There are no derivatives. It's basically an investor buying shares and selling the shares to another investor. We call it peer-to-peer. And that type of marketplace, I believe, is what originally existed a long time ago. And I think it's refreshing to see a marketplace that has that type of behavior. One example is we show the order book. What's the order book? 
All the people are trying to place orders before the market opens. All the people are selling shares before the market opens. We show that in complete transparency to everybody. That's a big innovation. You, don't, you can't do that. I mean, you go on Robinhood to invest. You don't see the order book. You know who sees the order book? The hedge funds. They see it. The market makers see the order book. That's why I think it's not a fair marketplace. It's not fair for everybody. I believe our marketplace is fair. Now, people can criticize us all day long and say, you're this tiny market, you're nothing, you're like a blip in the ocean. True. That's true today. That might not be true tomorrow. Every company has to start somewhere, right? And yeah, I mean, I think the order book and the market history data is really cool. I'm looking at it right now. I've, I've actually spent quite a bit of time looking at it and you know, right now there's a bid at 925 for 28 shares. You know, I can see this right in, in the order book and, you know, the market history I could see on Friday, this past Friday at 236, 30 shares traded at, you know, X dollars. So it's, it's really cool that you're able to see that data. And we made it so that every investor has the same information. Now you could argue that an insider has different information and that's why we have speed bumps. And that's why we disclose when they sell their shares so that people know. So in a way, creating a fair market share means in a way that everybody has the same information and the rules are clear for everybody. I'm really, really curious to see how the lack of financial products, derivatives, bonds, options, you know, all these different things in this market impact it. And I'm curious to see if, you know, over the long term, five, 10 years, if this secondary equity crowdfunding market becomes popular, I'm curious to see if the broader financial markets takes any you know, learns anything from this and, and implements it to the larger stock market. And you know, I think it's going to be tough just because of how much money there is in the bond and, and options and derivatives markets. And there's so many people that make so much money from there. But I'm curious if this is a, a case study that we can use to impact the broader financial markets. Well, you know, you saw Robin Hood screaming loud recently saying, hold on a second, we need to change how things are done. There's this notion that you buy shares and it takes two days to clear it. And that two days is a systemic risk opportunity. So you have to cover it with capital. And so Robinhood had to put $3 billion of money up and stop selling the GameStop shares. And now everybody's saying, hold on a second, you're in on it. You're in on it with the big guys. And all of this is because of regulation. And the regulation are, is such that it creates these dilemmas, right? The naked shorts, the idea that you can short more shares than exist, the idea that you need more capital if something explodes in, in price. In our marketplace, our trades are instantly cleared. Exactly what Robinhood has been asking for, except we're, it's 2021 and we do it. By the time the market goes to instant clearing, I think we're talking about 10 years from now. That's an opinion. I may be wrong. Maybe they have plans to do it earlier than that, but it's not today. And we have instant clearing. So you can sell and buy and sell and buy stock and companies and not worry about whether during the round trip, you know, when I'm selling and the money comes or doesn't come, what happens? You know, the whole market crashes and you're out. I mean, these are called systemic risks. In theory, they're theoretical risks. They're not necessarily there, uh, in the, the risk is there in theory, but it doesn't mean it happens. In our marketplace, we took that out. We made it really, really convenient. And we believe that as we grow, and again, our goal is to have a lot of companies on our 
marketplace where we hope every company that raises money on Star Engine will be trading. That's what we hope. That's up to the company to decide. We think that we're bringing something new to the table that I think is refreshing. And I think it's going to benefit entrepreneurs and investors. Charlie Munger talks a lot about incentives. And when I think about the broader financial markets, I have no idea how long it's going to take for that instant clearing to take place in those markets. But I think the big hurdle there is how many people are incentivized by trades not clearing right away, right? How much money is made by those market makers in the middle. And I think that's going to be a huge hurdle for the broader financial markets to overcome. You know, when people are making billions and trillions of dollars, it's hard to cut that out. I think the study will come out one day. Right now, I'm told the studies show that market makers add value. I don't believe that. I think they don't add value. I don't believe it. I think over time, if you are a freaking trader, it erodes. It takes money out of the market instead of putting it into the market. That's an opinion. That is me saying something out of no, I would say, research and paperwork and studied it. It's just intuitive to me that people say market makers matter because they create liquidity. But if you have a market of 5 million investors, each trading between themselves, that's liquidity. That, I call that liquidity. The fact that a market maker can say at 2 p.m., I can step in and buy the shares if no one's in there. I think it's ridiculous when there's, there's just so many people. At 2 p.m., there will be a buyer. I completely agree. And again, it goes back to just there's so many people in the middle that make money. I think it's just hard to cut out. And I forget the exact saying, but there's a saying that basically, if you want to study for something, you know, if you need a specific result from a study, there's enough money you could pay to get a study to provide that result. And you know, with incentives being what they are, I wouldn't be overly surprised if that isn't how these types of studies for market makers are being made. I think you're right, Robert. There's too much money in play today in these markets. And there are conflicts of interest. They're all over the place. The fact that the big brokers own the DTC, which holds all the shares, the fact that the hedge funds are borrowing money from those big brokers, everybody has an incentive in everybody. There's a lot of cross ownership in the stock market, in the financial industry. So, you know, that's how it is. Is it going to change or not? Well, regulators are looking into it. I think every time there's a scandal, every time there's a debacle, every time there's a big financial crisis, things change, right? Guess what happened? Why am I here even talking to you? The reason I'm here talking to you because in 2007, 2008, the Great Recession, where the financial markets collapsed, People came to Congress and said, look, we're small businesses. We need another way to capitalize ourselves. The big guys are not allowing us to do it. So we, we want something new. We came up with this thing called crowdfunding. Think about this, Robert. That happened only because of that financial crisis. And we are here, recipient of that benefit today. Now, you know, it's true. It's 10 plus years later. So what? It now exists. You mentioned that it's up to the company whether they are available to trade on the secondary market. Is this something that you're going to require these founders and these companies to publicly make known in their offering when they're raising capital on Start Engine? So, like as investors, are we going to know ahead of time whether they're planning on trading on the secondary market, or is that kind of be 
kind of a variable that, you know, a risk that we might have to take as investors. That is correct. My goal is to inform investors ahead of time, at the time of the offering, if they're going to be trading or not. Now, it's possible that if we don't mention that they're going to trade, they can elect to do it later. Yes. And that could be one of the questions an informed investor can do on the page and say, hey, are you going to be trading or not? And guess what? If you're not going to be trading, I'm not going to invest. I don't know. If I was an entrepreneur and I got a lot of those messages, I would be starting to wonder, maybe I should allow the trading and why not? For 10,000 bucks, why wouldn't you, right? Yeah, why not? No reason not to. So I think, I think your point is pretty valid. It's going to be natural that as time evolves and this marketplace becomes more mature, equity crowdfunding will be trading as well. And I think we're the pioneers here. We're the first. And we hope to set the standard that an equity crowdfunding investor who makes an investment in a risky startup with the understanding they could lose all their money, right? At least can have some idea that eventually in a certain near future, there is some form of liquidity. There's no guarantee of liquidity, by the way. When we talk about liquidity without a market maker, it's only good if there's someone else on the other side buying or selling. But so what? That's good enough, I think. And some will benefit from that liquidity and others will sell, some will buy and let the market decide in the end of the day. The price will be made based on the appetite. To the extent there are more buyers than sellers, price goes up. To the extent there are more sellers than buyers, the price goes down. Doesn't that seem logical? <laughs> it seems pretty obvious to me. And we build it so that transparency, that, that system makes sense. Yeah, me too, completely. And you know, I think you're right. I think you make a, an important point is that just because there's the secondary market doesn't mean there's necessarily liquidity. I think it's still a relatively illiquid market in comparison to the broader financial markets and the stock market, but I think it makes equity crowdfunding a lot more liquid than it was previously. So it's still not necessarily super liquid, but it's definitely more than it was previously. And obviously your team and you at Start Engine are a lot more experienced than I am and a lot smarter about this stuff than I am. But as a, an investor and a user of the platform, I think it's a really good call. I think it'll add a lot of confidence to investors if they can know ahead of time as to whether or not those shares are expected to trade on the secondary market. We agree with you. We believe so. Again, there's a transition period of time right now. We launched it recently. We believe it's the future of finance. The future of finance is this. Democratization to access capital for everyone, not just the elite and allow investors to be early in great new ideas. Yes, there are risks, but so what? That's part of the whole world of investing. And giving access to great new ideas early with some form of liquidity, which will power entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams, we're creating a whole new economy here. And we believe that's the future of finance. There's currently a limited trading window of just 1 to 3 p.m. Why is that? We're experimenting right now. We're trying to figure out the right window. We have the flexibility to have a different window for every company. And we are going to try to figure out what is the right amount of time something should trade. I mean, it would be nice one day 
to have 24 seven. What's wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, that's super popular with cryptocurrency. So I, I think if an equity crowdfunding market can be 24 seven, I think that would be a huge, huge advantage, at least from my perspective. As we wrap up the show, I want to briefly touch on your relationship with Kevin O'Leary. I was actually honored to have him here on the podcast back on episode 58. On that episode, he actually briefly mentioned partnering with a crowdfunding platform. I don't think he mentioned the name at the time. I'm not sure if the deal had been fully finalized yet, but he had briefly mentioned to me that he was getting really involved in the space. He eventually joined Start Engine as a strategic advisor. How did you get Kevin to join the team and why did you specifically want Kevin? Well, I play golf with one of his agents. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of his because I think on Shark Tank, I think Kevin O'Leary is the smart investor. He always gets the best deals, I think. And he has a demeanor that is very straightforward. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's really clear to the entrepreneurs uh, what his intentions are. I like it. I liked his uh, persona. And so I needed a way to explain to the general public in the United States what equity crowdfunding was all about. And to me, Kevin is one of those people who can simplify things down to the basics better than most. He has that knack, that ability to communicate in a way that I think people resonate. So yes, he came on board. We had one meeting with him. He immediately understood what we were doing, immediately got it, and was on board on the spot. So we closed our deal. The day we closed our deal, the market went down 2,000 points. That was in March of 2020. 2,000 points. That's a pretty big drop for a marketplace. I think everybody was pretty surprised, frankly. It has recovered since a lot. But just then, I think it was a great moment to sign a deal because we were in no matter what happened to the marketplace. We were in because we believed that Kevin can help us communicate in a way that we couldn't do it before ourselves. And so we've been placing ads on the television, on different networks, on social media. It's been a great response. I think it's helped us tremendously. So he is an advisor you know, as a spokesperson for our company is great. I think he provides a lot of validity to the idea of equity crowdfunding as a whole as well, because on Shark Tank and just in general, he often calls out people for, you know, not necessarily like the best businesses or the best models or, you know, just all these different numbers that he says, like, this is not real or right or good. And if he's backing equity crowdfunding, he believes that this is something that's, you know, real and true and going to stay for the long term, I think. Well, some of his companies actually came on Start Engine and raised capital and very successful. So I think it's more than just being a believer. He's actually using equity crowdfunding for his own businesses. And I think that's a great thing. I mean, you can't ask for a better endorsement than that. Yeah, it takes it a, even a step further. What advice would you give to an aspiring millennial entrepreneur or aspiring equity crowdfunding investor listening to the show today? In terms of entrepreneurs, my best advice is you should pursue your dreams. It is difficult. It's a long journey. It's uncertain. It has a lot of risk. But if you think about it, the idea of risk as an entrepreneur has not been properly priced. Risk when you buy options or sell puts 
or buy puts or options are priced. Entrepreneurship is not priced. And I think is underpriced. I believe that the idea of entrepreneurship has a lot more potential than people realize. And now that you can access capital using equity crowdfunding, we've made the lives of entrepreneurs a lot better, a lot better than it was before. So I think the main ingredient that's left for you, the entrepreneur, is your grit. I call it the intersection of passion and resilience. You need both. That cocktail is critical to your success. And now that we can bring capital your way, I think it's made entrepreneurship even better than it was before. Now for the investors in equity crowdfunding, I can't provide any advice to them because I'm in the market as an equity crowdfunding platform. But I think there's a lot of literature out there. There's a lot of information for investors to read. I think follow our company, follow what we're doing and see if it's an, an area you're interested in. I call it alternative assets. What we do is not national market securities like NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange. We're an alternative investment. Some people look at alternative investments like real estate and gold and oil and gas and collectibles. And I think startups belong in a portfolio of an investor as any alternative investment, including real estate, belongs in the portfolio of an investor. Howard, thank you so much for joining me today. It's truly been an honor. And this has been one of my favorite episodes to date. For everyone listening that wants to learn more about you, equity crowdfunding, Start Engine, where's the best place for them to go? Well, the best place is to go to startengine.com and see what this all looks like. And you can sign up. It's free. And if you're interested, you can invest. If you're interested, you can follow companies. You don't have to invest. And you can follow the dreams of hundreds of entrepreneurs. I'll be sure to put links to the platform and a bunch of other interesting equity crowdfunding literature in the show notes. You guys that are interested can go ahead and check that out. Howard, thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.